Bombing down Poinsettia, prologue in chapter one. Oklahoma by the sea. I just took off one morning. I didn't say anything to anybody. Well, I mean, I said goodbye to my mom. That was it. She was the only one there. My wife and I, we weren't we weren't living together at the time. She was staying over there with her mom and my my baby, my one year old son was with her, naturally. She was staying with her mom. I was staying with my mom. I didn't say anything. I just got up and went. Hadn't planned it. Did I swear I didn't even think about it the night before. I just I'd given a my wife some money the night before and gave my mom a little bit. I didn't have very much, but I had $300 left over and I took what boxes and clothes and shit I had and I threw in the back of that old four Granada and I decided I'm gone. Police are looking for me and well, at least I was told the police are still looking for detectives were looking for me. I, I shouldn't say police. I mean, detectives, they, detectives like to ask questions Police like to arrest people. What am I talking about? Well, I, my name is Stanley Dwayne Sires. That is, um, you should know who you're talking to. I've had some AKAs and shit in the past, so let's just get the name straight, okay? Hi, my name's Stan, fuckers. I ain't no member of the mob or, you know, gang or anything. I was a nickel and dime thief at best. I'm not making excuses. It isn't a sob story. I'm just telling a fucking story. Let's get that right, okay? I was 17. I was married. Had a child. Tough making ends meet, but so was life. Who cares? I took the easy road. I kept my legit job, but I also... I started, you know, moving, stolen merchandise, just subsidized my income. 17. That's such a goddamn douchebag. I had a fence, yeah. He was moving stuff up north, maybe even other states. I didn't want to know where. I had legitimate businesses in Tulsa that bought from me. And being the young, immature shit-ass that I was, well, I'd, I had dreams and I had aspirations. Being a thief wasn't one of them. But, oh, well, long story short, I got caught stealing. And everybody does. I don't give a shit. How slick you think you are, you'll get complacent. And the second you do, you're fucking caught. Okay? They will outsmart your dumb ass. Trust me. Um, on with the fucking story. After my black market enterprise collapsed, I had a friend who was in the movie The Outsiders. I'm name dropping. <laughs> yeah, an old friend from the movie The Outsiders tell me that the detectives were looking for me. But before they could slap the cuffs on my minor ass, I hit the fucking road. I used that as an excuse to hit the road. Okay? Not sure it's the most irresponsible thing I've done, but definitely in the top two. What was the appeal of Los Angeles? Well, my best friend Shane was out there. We had both had aspirations, and mine was to study acting, method acting, under Susan Strasberg, daughter of Lee Strasberg, founder of the Actors Studio. That was my dream. I swear to God, it wasn't to be a celebrity. I wasn't interested in being a movie star and all that shit. I proved it. I proved it later. I just wanted to study acting under Susan. 
I just wanted to get the fuck out. So I did. I didn't even go by and say goodbye to my son, my wife. My mom was the only one I said goodbye to. Mom come out saying, Stanley, I really wish you wouldn't go. I really wish you wouldn't do this. But I said, I got to go, Mom. I got to. I stopped in Amarillo and I bought a quart of beer. Brazenly sat on the hood of my car, drinking that quart of beer on the on-ramp, just west of Amarillo, sitting there drinking that quart of beer at the age of 17, staring out west like some fucking idiot. I mean, if you look like you had hair in your balls and you can handle yourself, nobody would fuck with you. And nobody fucked with me. Thank God for that, because I hadn't a fucking clue what I was doing drove all night and I, I don't remember much about the drive but it's been 36 years and I still remember how I felt the day I rolled the fuck out of Oklahoma I how good it felt the morning I arrived in Long Beach, right there at the roundabout. Roundabout where Pacific Coast Highway and Lakewood Boulevard run into each other. I drove up to the parking lot right next to the Burger King, parked the car in a spot facing the traffic, killed the motor, and climbed out. It felt, it felt so damn good to get my ass out of that damn car. First thing that hit me when I got out was cool air of my ass. <laughs> It was just nice. The sound of cars circling the roundabout, the crown of the palm trees swaying in the wind. I mean, they were noisy. I lay one arm over the top of the car door. I smiled, pushing the sunglasses back at the bridge of my freckled nose. I had that unbelievable feeling as though nothing was actually taking place, you know? I mean, it was as though I wasn't really there, you know? I mean, I knew the area, and it had been there before because of my best friend Shane. It was... Just strange being back again on my own accord. I clearly remember standing in that parking lot looking around saying to myself, Ain't no fucking going back to Oklahoma now. No way. I was there, man. <laughs> Still, I wasn't afraid. The second thing I noticed after I got out of the car was the smell of dead ass. That's right. You never been to the ocean, it smells like rotten ass. You've never been by rotten ass. Smells like the ocean. I cringed a bit as I slipped out from behind the door of the Granada and began stretching my legs in the parking lot. Like I said, my best friend Shane and his girlfriend Susie lived just up the hill in the Terminal Apartments. Shane and I had grown up together back in Oshalade, Oklahoma. We'd been tied ever since we executed our first big heist at a local laundromat during the summer before a third grade year. After navigating our way into the laundromat's locked office, we helped ourselves to a few quarters each, then hauled ass down to the street 
where he enjoyed a couple of fountain drinks and candy bars at the local drugstore. Those are the friendships that can never be denied. (laughs) Anyway, I'd pretty much went out my welcome when I'd flown out and stayed with Shane and Susie a few months prior. It was a short visit, just long enough to get too old with the three of us cooped up in that studio apartment. I bitched a lot. I complained about the food Susie prepared. I whined about having to sleep on the floor. I grumbled because I didn't have a car or money. After a couple of months, my best friend suggested I fly my ass back home and get my shit together, so I did, kind of. I went back home, made some money, abandoned my family, and drove right back out. Furthermore, I did it without any kind of sensible plan regarding how in the hell I was going to survive. I just knew I wasn't going to bother Shane and Susie anymore because had they invited me to sleep on their floor again, they'd eventually have to uninvite me. Eh, I don't remember calling them right away anyway. I really must have been a bonafide moron. And I say that because I was back in Long Beach with only $254 in my pocket. That was all the stake I had to make the shit work. That's right. 254 fucking dollars. I don't know why I remember the number. It was a better start than some people get, but super stupid, just the same. Before leaving Oklahoma, I thought about the financial scenarios. I mean, but they were nothing more than stupid guesses at best. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Through it all, I somehow managed to bullshit myself into believing that I'd be able to make a life out there with that kind of money. Yeah. It was delusional, sure. None of my financial forecasts and monetary mental pie charts had been remotely accurate. They were hilarious, just not accurate. With only $254 in my pocket, I had better luck finding somebody to wipe my dick off before finding a place to live. But that wasn't the point. It didn't matter. I was in Long Beach. I wasn't back in Skytook, Oklahoma. I was in Long Beach, California. I wasn't back dreaming i was living this shit i did have a good running reliable piece of shit ford granada yeah so i'd pretty much come to terms with my situation as far as i was concerned it was a home on wheels and that it would be for a month the logic was idiotic but not dumb enough to discourage me i was gambling with nothing more than the balls between my legs and 254 fucking dollars It's a fleeting memory, but I remember staying in one of those ratty-ass motels nearby that night. The room cost like $25, and I only did that because I had to have a shower. It was crap, but I needed the shower and a night out of the car. I mean, I realized there weren't going to be any more beds to sleep in for a while because I'd fully planned to sleep in the back of my car for as long as it took. took a shower. Went next door to Burger King, grabbed a burger, listened to a woman get her ass spanked next door. Made it a little bit louder in the TV so you couldn't ignore it, but it was really more funny than arousing. But yeah, it was arousing too. Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> I woke up the next morning and wasted absolutely no time looking for a job in Long Beach, California. Small water cash in my front pocket wasn't going to last very long and I needed a job immediately. I drove north on the PCH to a little 7-Eleven on the right-hand side close by. It was one I'd been familiar with. I'd been there before back when I was staying with Shane and Susie. 
I pulled up, filled up the gas tank, got a cup of their mule piss coffee and a newspaper. After filling up, I parked, fanned out the classifieds, and began charting my day. I went ahead and I dropped some money down on a Thomas Guide, too. Thomas Guide was a great big thick catalog you could buy in stores back then. We didn't have GPS and shit, kids. We had Thomas Guides, a big thick catalog of fucking road maps and shit. And if you didn't have one, you couldn't get around. You didn't need a fucking charger to get around. But if you couldn't read, set your dumb ass back down. I don't remember anything about the first day of job hunting. It was slim pickings. It really was. Almost everybody at that point, they they weren't interested in hiring you unless you went through an agency. Well, without a residence, I couldn't go through a fucking agency. I needed somebody to hire me right off the fucking street. Literally. We had no cell phones. I had a fucking pay phone and a car. That is all Stanley Sires has to offer. And the mountain I had to climb in a pair of blue jeans and t-shirt. Trust me, with the keys to your office and your multi-million dollar equipment, my name is Stan, and I just appeared out of nowhere. Fuckers. I was nervous when I settled in to spend the first night sleeping in the back of my car next to that roundabout. Earlier in the day, I called back home just to let everybody know I was on site job hunting. Now the day was over, the sun was dropping. I sat in the hood of my car, my elbows and my knees, and my feet up on the bumper, watching the traffic pass by. I'd applied for work at a few gas stations and shit. I went to the Ralphs, just opposite the roundabout from where I was sitting. But I didn't have a fucking phone, so a lot of good that did. I told them I'd check back. It was stressful, but I felt like a resident. I was homeless, but I felt like a resident. It's the same. I only had like 160 bucks left, but I'd really needed the room the night before. Believe me, a 1,500-mile trip, you need a shower. Just get the travel shit off of you. It was about 10.30 when I finally relented and began performing what would become the regular the regular tiresome daily ritual of moving all the boxes of my shit from the back seat of my car to the front seat of my car so I could go to sleep. Big and small boxes all intertwined with one another. Moving them took a couple of minutes. After properly positioning all the boxes up front so they'd fit despite the steering wheel, I dressed up the back seat with blankets I'd brought along, an old silver chrome wind-up alarm clock my grandma gave me. I set it to Pacific time just before leaving Oklahoma, gave it a couple of more good wines before setting it up in the back window of the car. I wore my jeans, but I took my shirt off, my boots and socks off. I cracked the car window, locked the doors, let that ocean breeze come in, that dead-ass ocean breeze. Between that, the clicking of the alarm clock and the swish of the passing traffic, believe it or not, I drifted off to sleep pretty quick.
Well, I'll tell you something. The volume of a wind-up, clanging-ass alarm clock is pretty fucking loud when it goes off inside a closed car. Holy fuck. Jerk my ass from a dead sleep the next morning. I'd set the alarm at 5 or 6 a.m. I really can't remember. It was still dark outside. Took a few seconds for the damn ringing in my ears to subside as I looked around while rubbing my eyes. I didn't waste any time. I, I got right out in the cold parking lot, barefoot, and for the most part, the roads were empty. I clearly see the Alpha Beta sign and the other shops down Los Coyotes and the Pacific Coast Highway was damn near bone dry. Lakewood Boulevard looked dark and ominous. I popped open the front driver's side door and I started moving all the fucking boxes from the, you know, the back seat to the fucking front seat. It's chilly. Once I finished, I remembered, I remembered looking down the Pacific Coast Highway past Seal Beach, way out there beyond Huntington on the edge of nothing. It was just the beginning of a sunrise. The sky was black and gray and violet and orange. It felt like it was mine. Shit. I hadn't shit in like three days. I ain't stopping at one of them rest stops on I 40 to shit. I was too busy the day before trying to find work to shit. Just by chance, I didn't have to go when I was at Burger King. I had to go now. Once I got the boxes and shit moved back in, I used an old t shirt to wipe the smog off the fucking windshield. That's right. Every night in L.A. County, fucking orange smog settles all over your fucking windshield of your car. Defrost doesn't do shit. You have to wipe it off. Every morning, it's an issue for folks who have to park outside. Anyway, back to the shit emergency. I hauled ass up the PCH, the 7-Eleven, you know, that one I'd been to the day before getting the mule piss coffee. Well. I got there early enough, I caught the overnight clerk. He was actually stepping out from the bathroom door outside the building just as I pulled up. I parked the car in front and asked him for the key. He obliged and handed it to me. Bathroom was small, but it was clean. Once inside, I immediately noticed the drain in the center of the wet-tiled floor, and I thought, shit, yeah. Clerk had been in there mopping, using that drain to mop the floor. Now, this is significant. That tiled floor would play a huge role. That drain and that sink, that little bitty ass sink, it would play a role, folks. I'd need it. Well, the guy who worked overnight was pretty solid. As a matter of fact, he was the first person I anchored on to out there. I wasn't going to bother Shane and Susie anymore, so the overnight Middle Eastern store clerk was it. It had only been 40 hours since I had arrived, but still nice to see a familiar face. After using the restroom, I went to the store and bought another newspaper, but he threw in the coffee for free. That was nice. 
Coffee was shit, burnt road tar, mule piss, but like I say, it was free. On my second day of job hunting in Long Beach, I lucked out and landed one. It was that damn quick, and I couldn't believe it. There was a classified ad from a shipping company called American Ensign, and they were looking for a file clerk. The offices are just right up the road. I busted open the Thomas Guide, figured out where Atlantic Avenue was, figured it to be about a 10-minute drive. I don't remember exactly how the help wanted ad read, but I do remember it specifically not requiring any particular job qualifications, so you can bet your ass by 8 a.m., I was parked in front of the office building on Atlantic Avenue with a bullshit story all lined up. I needed this job. I walked into the lobby and upstairs a little bit after 8 a.m. Main office, Secretary Sally, real good-looking, dark-complected lady, gave me a great smile in an application when I asked about the gig. I sat in a chair next to her desk and was filling it out when an upbeat blonde-haired woman walked up and introduced herself. Hi! Trying not to look too desperate, I stopped writing. I laid the pen on the chair next to me, stood up, and shook her hand. Hello, ma'am. Are you applying for the file clerk position? Wow. It surprised me. Suddenly, it seemed the stars were starting to line up right, you know? All I had to do was not fuck it up. Yes, ma'am. I'm applying for the file clerk position. Good, she shot back. I'm the department supervisor, Cheryl. Cheryl was an attractive 30-year-old curly shoulder-length blonde-haired lady. Half-moon shaped glasses hung over the bridge of her girly nose, shielding a set of strikingly bright blue eyes. She always wore business attire slacks with a matching top that flattered her slender figure and round butt when she stomped through the office. She was a bit sporadic. Cheryl was one of those aspiring young women who always have five or six projects going on simultaneously. It was rare to see her without a stack of company documents in her hand and a ballpoint pen tucked behind her ear. She twitched a lot. When she took part in conversations, I mean, she'd be filling them in all the time with an assortment of expressions, interjecting comments, flamboyant hand gestures and jabs. She was cute. I really liked her. Just a little sporadic. Anyway, after filling out the application, she gave me an on-the-spot interview, and I was hired. Hell yes! Just like that, no shit! I'd been in Long Beach just short of three days and already had a job. Now, even though there had been two other applicants, American Ensign hired me. You know, I'm not blind to the fact that being a young 18-year-old white boy and my new boss was a hot blonde 30 years old might have had something to do with it, but I wasn't going to say no. Either way, I graciously, thankfully accepted that fucking job, you bet. Cheryl photocopied my Oklahoma driver's license after the tour and introductions and told me to come back the following morning to start work. For the record, they didn't give me keys to shit. They didn't trust me with nothing, but they did hire me. I walked back out to my car in Atlantic. 
It was a euphoric moment for me. Before driving off, I just sat there in my car. I took it all in. I still had over $100 in my pocket, a full tank of gas, and a new job to back it up. That was a lot to be happy about. Atlantic was a fairly busy street, and I was going to be seeing more of it. I wasn't going to fucking sleep on Atlantic, but I was okay to work there. myself a bit of a celebration that night back at the roundabout. I picked up a six-pack of cheap beer and a full meal at the burger joint. There's a small laundromat in the strip mall building on the other side of the parking lot. After dinner, I took my dirty clothes over and threw them in the wash. Probably goes without saying, being a young man, I didn't sort of fucking thing, including the whites. It all went into one load. While the clothes washed, I sat out front on the curb, smoking a cigarette with a beer between my legs. The parking lot in front of the laundromat was empty, with the exception of my big gray car. As a matter of fact, the laundromat was the only operating business in the strip mall, and I was the only customer. So I sat there by myself, getting buzzed on shit beer, watching cars navigate the roundabout, the family shuffle in and out of the restaurant. There was a pungent odor of sea life being carried in on the arms of the evening breeze. It was rank, but I embraced it. The smell was coming in off the very waters where Howard Hughes had once test-flown the Hercules. Natalie Wood had fallen off a yacht and drowned just right out there. I was right in the middle of where this shit happened. I wasn't back in Oshleda reading about it or watching some documentary about it on TV. I smiled, took a swig of my lukewarm shit beer. I ain't going to be sitting around watching Hee Haw reruns anymore. Mm-mm. Those days were over. I showed up to work the next morning about 30 minutes before I had to be there. I sat on the steps out front of the office building and watched traffic go by in Atlantic until somebody unlocked the front doors of the building. I hopped up and went in. It wasn't long before Cheryl, the bubbly blonde, my supervisor, showed up and gave me the office tour. During the tour, I swear to God, I, I kept hearing muffled comments coming from my new co-workers. And they weren't cruel or impolite remarks. On the contrary... Cheryl led me around from department to department. I clearly heard comments like, man, I'm so glad they got somebody else. And finally, somebody new down there. I, di- I didn't know what it meant. My new job was downstairs in the pit, as everybody called it. I was going to be a file clerk. My duties included retrieving and putting away files from upstairs. Each color-coded file represented a member of the military who was either living, leaving for, or returning from overseas. Accounting would handle the numbers. Documentation would give it a bill of lading. The billing department would charge the government, and we'd file the shit downstairs. I say we because I had a partner down there. His name was Victor. I called him Victor the Constrictor. Victor the Constrictor was a short, pleasant, kind of Filipino man with black hair and glasses. 
I'm guessing he was in his mid-20s at the time. He wasn't loud like me. He was soft-spoken. He was also incredibly lazy. On top of that, he was dangerous. He was a dangerous, lazy bastard who studied jujitsu but didn't do shit in the fucking file room where he worked. File room was a mess. Seriously. Looked as though nothing had been filed in a long time. Victor was a brown belt and ass-sitting. He was the one I was working with down there. Like I say, the file, file room was in bad shape the day I started. There was shit everywhere. Folders were stacked in tall, towering piles on the desk. If you bumped into it, they'd sway like skyscrapers in a windstorm. Files were heaped up on the floor. Files were in the chairs. More unfiled shit littered the top of the cabinets. You get that? There were stacks of files piled high on empty fucking file cabinets. It was that ridiculous. And what the old constrictor been doing down there all that time? Waxing his carrot? Well, apparently things have been bad for months. Because of the long-neglected file room, departments upstairs are starting to fall apart. People couldn't find paperwork they needed. I mean, it had to have been what the employees were commenting about when Cheryl gave me the tour upstairs. They, were, they weren't bitching about me. They were bitching about the constrictor. Yeah. yeah. The murky waters are starting to clear up some, so, hey... I immediately set out to clean that place up. File clerk had honestly been the easiest job I'd ever had up to that point. Carrying stacks of folders around in an air-conditioned office. That was so much sweeter than slinging truck transmissions in a junkyard in Sperry, Oklahoma. Hell yeah. I really felt as though I'd struck pay dirt. I couldn't give a shit how it made Victor look either. I mean, it was simple money to me. On my first day, I grabbed a stack of folders off the cart, semi-sorted them, and began the process of walking up and down the small rows to file them accordingly. Victor, of course, sat behind the desk reading a karate magazine while I worked. Without looking up, he said, you know, you don't have to do that, but I did it anyway. The entire first week at American Ensign was a pretty good one. It stayed busy, and by the end of it, I had already turned that file room damn near completely around. All the folders that had been heaped up in clusters throughout the room were gone. The mess had been reduced to just a few stacks in the file cart. Superiors took notice. Because things had become, you know, better organized downstairs already, productivity had begun to excel upstairs. It was that fucking quick. Cheryl came down a few times that week just to show off what I'd accomplished to the other department heads. She'd burst in through the door, and, well, of course, Victor's demeanor would go from slumber to, holy shit, you know, he'd jump up from behind the desk trying to look busy. I knew Victor wanted to get out of the file room. He hated it there. On several occasions during that first week, he had mentioned to me that he was just training me so he could, you know, advance in the company. He said it with a straight fucking face, too, but he had aspirations to move upstairs where the pay was better, and, you know, he could continue sitting on his ass behind a desk. Now, that was his goal, but come on, man. 
Did he really believe his past work performance in the foul room warranted a promotion? Wow. Victor is dangerous, lazy, and fucking dumb. All the attention I've been getting must have gotten under the constrictor's venomous skin because, you know, by my second week of employment, I caught the little prick trying to sabotage work I just finished. Not, I'm not being unfair or embellishing. When he didn't think I was looking, he'd pull folders I'd just put away, then intentionally misfile them on purpose, sometimes on different shelves. I watched a little prick do it. Eh. It was my second week. I didn't confront him. I just fixed the shit when he was out of the room, you know? I mean, some might consider that chicken shit, but it wasn't. The hard truth is, it didn't make me mad. I'm not going to start a war, Victor. That just would have been dumb. I wasn't going to upend things because of something as petty as that. I kept my cool, let him have his own little bullshit. And, you know, you can bet your ass I double-checked everything after that. And I kept a close eye on the bastard. That was enough. Other than those little annoyances, I really enjoyed working at American Ensign. It was a melting pot. For the first time in my life, I got to work with everybody. I'd never work with white, black, Mexican, Asian, and Jewish all in one place. Wow. <laughs> Back in Oklahoma, you know, the small town locals, uh, they might speak quietly about the one Jewish family that lived in town or the black guy that, you know, they went to school with at one point, but... Two or three times a year, a small-town Oklahoma folks might have to deal with a different denomination or race, but it was always, you know, in small doses so they can handle it. You know, nobody fucking freaked. You know, they just point fingers and, you know. L.A. Metro was completely opposite. I was working with Latin folks, Asian folks, blacks, white, Jews. Didn't matter. I loved it. It was cool. All those different worlds of culture intermingled. Every single person was a different story, and I was fascinated. And I I was happy to be part of it. Muhammad was a deaf black guy who worked upstairs in accounting at American Ensign. Why do deaf people smile so fucking much? I mean, I guess he was a nice guy. I never heard Muhammad speak, though. And I guess he didn't hear me either. Things were nice and quiet with Muhammad, that's for sure. You know, for a short while, I didn't think he was actually deaf. One morning I was upstairs when the mail cart, you know, was passing out and picking up folders and shit, and I just happened to be looking that way. An old tabletop phone on the desk next to Muhammad rang. He looked at it. I jumped up. I threw my finger pointing. Look! Uh Aha! Vibration. I'm a fucking moron. Probably would have been more convincing had Muhammad answered the phone and spoke. (laughs) Juan was a 27-year-old former East L.A. gang member. He was the chief biller in the billing department, and I really liked him. Juan was my friend, Juan Jimenez. He mentioned that he had done some time for running guns, but we never really talked about that too much. He, He didn't share anymore, and I didn't ask anymore. Juan was my friend. He showed me the West Side Longo tattoos on his arm and a tattoo pictured a tattoo picture of his wife on his chest. I mean, wow. That was devotion. 
sometimes Juan and I would, oh, we'd go and we'd have lunch, you know. That usually involved a old English 840-ouncer <laughs> sitting in one of them bus stops on Atlantic Avenue. <laughs> I mean, we'd just sit there and bullshit about the, you know, dumbass conflicts between our races and all the bullshit we went through as kids ourselves and, you know, how we both had regrets and, I don't know. I guess it was just two fuck-ups getting together, and that made us pretty good friends. After the 40s, we'd go back to the office a little drunk and try to make it through the rest of the day, but it wasn't easy because every time you hit the wrong key on the computer console, beep, 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 beep. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard to get through the day when you're, when you're drunk and laughing. Okay. I really liked almost everybody I work with. And Supervisor Cheryl, who... We seem to be on the verge of an anxiety attack to workaholic Brad, the vice president. People on American Ensign were really good to me. They sure as hell weren't what I expected. Before we move on, I have to tell you about the food truck, though. i got to tell you about the two, two largest ladies in the office. Now, I don't bring this up to be cruel. I mention it because, well, it's funny. Every day we were given a 20-minute break out in front of the office where the food truck would pull up right at about 10.20 a.m. There are two really nice, very nice, yet large ladies by the name of Sue and Barbara who worked in documentation. Now, when that clock struck 10.20 a.m., you did not want to get caught between them and that fucking food truck. I don't know how much they weighed, but I noticed they were always the first ones out the fucking door despite it. Okay? Side by side, Barbara and Sue, they had no elevator. They would stampede down the second floor steps to the lobby below. That's right. I got caught one time walking up them fucking stairs with a handful of folders. Clock struck 1020. Here they come. I was halfway up. Holy shit. My options were minimal. Pure instinct alone. I did a 180 and hauled ass back down. I mean... I didn't have to jump over the railing or anything. My memory doesn't serve me as to which side I ended up reaching. But I just know I wasn't in the way when they got there. They didn't say pardon me or any of that shit. I just heard the grunts and heavy panning. I think they had asthma over my left shoulder as they were barreling out the glass doors behind me. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, it seems cruel to be talking about this, but it isn't because it's true. Barbara and Sue were really, really sweet ladies, and I'd never wish anything bad on them. There's no one else I'd like to remember more than Barbara and Sue, and, you know, the clock strikes 1020 every fucking morning. <laughs> well, late one afternoon, a guy who'd become one of my dearest friends came down. He was in a vain search for a file he'd been in dire need of for a long time. His name was Mark. Mark McGinnis. He um he had been working for the company as an accountant. I'm about five ten, so I'd say Mark is probably about six one. If he took his mohawk into account, he's about six eight. Uh, <laughs> in walk I'm in the file room. In walks this tall, skinny dude dressed like a punk rocker with his big hair and his leather pants. I couldn't believe he was allowed to dress like that in the workplace, but I assumed he must have been really good at his job. Victor, Mark barked as he stepped into the room. 
I'm still trying to find the file for this William Faggot dude. He raged. He gestured to a document he had in his hand. Victor, who was about 5'5", stepped around his desk and stood up on his toes to take a look at the document Mark was holding. Yeah, man, I've looked everywhere for that folder, Mark, and uh, still haven't found it, he replied, settling back to the floor. That was bullshit. If you called Denton an office chair with your ass looking, Victor, and I suppose the constrictor had indeed been looking. After a few seconds, I interrupted the conversation. What's the name on the file? William Faggot, Mark replied without looking up from the bill of lighting. Oh, yeah, Victor chimed in. Mark, this is Stan. Stan, this is Mark. I stepped forward, Mark leaned across the desk, and we shook hands. Hey, man, I've heard a lot about you. Been trying to make time to come down here and meet you, he smiled. Nice to meet you, too, man, I replied. Mark held the bill of lighting up so I could see it. Sure enough, the guy's name was William Faggot, F-A-G-G-O-T. William Faggot, I smirked. Mark chuckled. Yeah, you seen this file? And most recently, I'd run out of filing duties, so I'd begun to meticulously check each and every row of files in the room for misplaced ones. Coincidentally, I was holding a small stack of folders in my hand that had been misfiled. My eyes glanced over the names and almost immediately spotted what Mark had been looking for. The William Faggot folder was in my damned hand. Okay, I realized that the file room wasn't exactly the National Archives, but still, there it was. William Faggot, in my hands. What are the chances? Here you go, I said, pulling the folder out from the bundle. William Fag. (laughs) Mark snatched the folder as I held it out and immediately burst out laughing. Holy shit! There it is, he bellowed as he began sifting through the contents. I've been looking for this fucking folder forever! Victor obviously wasn't amused. He stepped closer to Mark, grabbed the corner of the file, looked at me and goes, where'd you have this? As if to imply I was the one to blame for the misplaced folder. Needless to say, it pissed me off. I didn't fucking have it anywhere, Victor. I snapped back. Yeah, Victor, this folder's been missing for months, Mark said. How long you worked here, Mark said? Two weeks, I answered. Mark laughed and shook my hand again. Before exiting the room, he turned and looked right at me. You're going to do good here, man. Later that day, Cheryl, who was the billing department supervisor, my supervisor, came down once again to congratulate me. I'm finding the... I can nearly hear Victor the Constrictor shit in his pants. Quickly, he had become the elephant in the room. As for me, well, my living arrangements next to the roundabout in Long Beach had become, well, an endurance trial at that point. It was the uh, Sunday before payday. I was bored, dirty, hungry, and exhausted. I didn't have any money left. I put the last bit of my money in the fucking gas tank. You know, to help conserve cash, I'd I'd been driving directly to work each and every morning straight back to the roundabout at night. I couldn't sleep on Atlantic. Just can't do that. Only what added to the stress I was feeling that week. I mean, I didn't want anybody to know... My situation. They would have fussed over me had they seen me sleeping outside in the car, and it would have humiliated him. I I was way too young and prideful. I'd rather suffer than accept help, and suffer I did. I was a fool. At night, back at the roundabout, sometimes I'd take walks and shit, you know, just trying to kill the time. 
I'd walk over to the grocery store on those coyotes and eat grapes right out of the produce department. I was just so fucking hungry. I mean, sometimes at work I get lucky and snatch a package of crackers in the break room and wolf them down. But, you know, you, you can't let on weakness at all. I drank a lot of coffee and ate creamer. <laughs> I wouldn't have made it through that time. Hadn't it been just for the few times that my best friend Shane drove down from Terminal Apartments just to check on me. I didn't ask for his fucking help. I didn't let on that I needed any fucking help. He'd just show up once in a while with a sack of shit for me to eat, you know? I mean, just seeing him and talking to him, I think that's what helped me get through it, you know? It reminded me that I wasn't completely alone out there. The day finally arrived. Payday. It had been weeks. I was completely penniless. I... I'd eaten nothing for a couple of days. My clothes stunk. The car's fuel gauge needle was bent on E. Just, I was on rock bottom. I was barely hanging on. Life in the backseat of that Ford Granada at that point had just really become painful. I was physically and emotionally wiped the fuck out. Even though I'd been working at Ensign for weeks now, I remember thinking... Somehow there wouldn't be a paycheck for me that day. I don't know why. I remember thinking that I'd have to continue without, you know. I just didn't know how. It was about 9.30 a.m. I stepped in the break room to get a cup of coffee. and Well, the company had a big slot mailbox hanging on the wall next to the water cooler. All the employees had a slot with their name on it and... You know, up to that point, mine had always been empty because, hey, who the fuck is going to send me mail? <laughs> anyway, I, I walked in to the break room to get the coffee, and there was an envelope in my slot. Thanks for listening to this first uh, chapter here, Bombing Down Poinsettia by Stanley Sires. I'll be back next Wednesday night with Chapter 2, Bombing Down Poinsettia. Don't miss it. 8 p.m. right here. Stand the Joke Man Show. And it flows like water burning With a hope of inside feathers Books the colors of a bright elation stolen In the side of